Hi guys, this is Grace Huang, and you're now listening to some additional content we have with John Anderson, former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. If you haven't yet heard his story on our regular episodes, you might want to check it out before you listen to this. And as we said before, the political views expressed by our valued guests are their own, and their appearance on the show does not necessarily imply any endorsement of theirs or any entity they represent. So now with COVID-19 happening right before us, what do you think is going to happen with our country or with the world? I think it's incredibly hard to know because we don't know, as, I, as, as you and I speak now, how long it's going to go on for and how bad the uh, health crisis will be and how bad the economic mayhem that will result will be. But it's likely to be extremely serious and there will be dreadful hangover, particularly of debt and of very high levels of unemployment. And there will be a furious debate between those who say, right, let's keep big government interfering, free enterprises had its day. A lot of young people now have lost confidence in capitalism. This interview with John was on March 23rd, 2020, which was the same week Australia's current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, urged Australians to stay home unless it was absolutely necessary to go out. So while John had planned to record from his studio in Sydney, he ended up sheltering at home to speak to me. And what was supposed to be an interview about his faith and career story turned out to be much more. Because perhaps as a former politician, John had foresight on the broader picture of this pandemic, even when nations were just starting to respond to COVID-19. In this bonus content, we get into John's views a bit more. He shares a personal story on war and allows us to see through the lens of a political leader with what's going on today and the issues surrounding it now and the future. John, I'm very curious to pick your brain on what you feel about war and how your personal experience may have impacted you to think the way you think about it. War is a terrible brutalizer and the effects of a major war can carry forward for many generations. They can shape societies and have a negative impact, I think, for many, many years. We'd been born when our parents were quite old because their lives were interrupted by the Second World War and it delayed my mother and father getting married for many years because dad was very, very badly wounded. So your father, he was about how old when he met your mom and had kids? Uh, well, he actually met my mother when they were in their last years at school. So when he was about 17 or 18 and everyone assumed they'd eventually get married, but then the war came and dad said he wouldn't marry her for fear that he might get killed and he almost did. And so by the time they finally married, they were both well into their 30s, which was old in those days. So what kind of injury did he have? He was uh, shrapnel injuries, very, very bad ones. He wasn't expected to live. His friends found him at the end of the second day of the Battle of Al Alamein, which was the, the first major battle that the Allies actually managed to stop the Germans in. And it was one of the World War II battles that Australians played a critical role in. Uh, and it was the point at which Churchill said, uh, well, this is the, uh, uh, the end of the beginning, perhaps. For the first time the Germans got a big setback. But my father was uh, manning or leading three anti-tank guns. The Germans found the range. Shrapnel started exploding all around them. My father was only about 24. A young man panicked, jumped up out of the trenches, was exposed. My father went up to pull him back down and was massively injured. His friends found him in a hospital tent that night. 
He was in a coma. The doctor said he won't see the night out, but he did, and he eventually recovered. He paid a terrible price for war. It's given me an abhorrence of human conflict. It's also given me a firm conviction, though, that human conflict is something we will never see the end of. The old Chinese proverb is right. If you seek peace, prepare for war. So growing up on the farm, it was you, your dad, because your mom passed away when you were three years old. What was your view about life or death growing up, especially without a mom? I don't know how much a, a young person can comprehend death. When you're young, you know, you think it's never going to happen. It's probably not until your mid-30s. I know for me, my father died when I was 35. And I remember driving to a hospital one night thinking to myself, well, the three score and 10, that's 70 years. And it struck me that life is actually incredibly short. And I think that happens to men at about age 35 to 40. They suddenly realize that if you think back 35 years, you can remember when you were a little kid, you think forward 35 years and you're going to be seriously old. Life doesn't last long. I'm not sure as a kid, even losing my mother, um, deeply conscious as I was of her not being there. Uh, and we do long, uh, we ought to remember this, we do actually long deep down to know our mother and our father. To, you know, it's, it's part and parcel of the way that we're wired, I believe. So I certainly missed her and wanted to know more of her and was always fascinated when people spoke about her. But I don't know that I had a deep sense of, uh, you know, if you like, my own mortality arising out of it. When you were a member of the National Cabinet back in 1996 to about 2005, you shared about how for years you worked on cutting debt in Australia, how it wasn't easy at first as a reformist government. What happened after and how can that relate to what's happening in our world today? In Australia, what happened was that the fruit arrived, employment started to rise strongly, and wages, real wages started to rise strongly. And it particularly for a few years gave young people a tremendous set of opportunities as they came out of schools and went to universities and went into the job market. And the entire nation started to see the value of it. And it shifted the way Australians saw things. But now we're going to go through it all again because the truth is we had the 0708 debt crisis started by, the trigger was Lehman Brothers failing. Uh, but you've got to see that as a lens for seeing what happened, a frightful economic collapse. The public sector took a whole lot of debt on from the private sector, which means the taxpayers now have big debts. We solved the debt crisis with more debt, and then we've had COVID-19 catching us at a time when we were still deeply in debt, not having done the hard reform to fix our economies properly. And that applies to America as well. It's been growing very strongly and people have been enjoying the jobs and the better prosperity until COVID-19 came. But what has been really worrying me as an admirer of America is the way in which the public sector debt is growing, 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 which means particularly if interest rates ever go up, tomorrow's taxpayers will be absolutely hit hard and there's no way around it. That's, to my way of thinking, the dishonesty of some of the popular, in inverted commas, solutions that are being bandied around that appeal superficially to young people, but actually, uh, you know, to take Britain, for example, when I was a young man, Britain had been spending too much money. It had tried the very things that are being promoted again now by some people in Britain, the very things, all the same things. History 
doesn't necessarily repeat exactly, but it rhymes. And Britain ended up basically broke. One of the wealthiest countries in the world had to go cap in hand to the International Monetary Fund to get a bailout. And then a very strong leader came along and forced through reforms, tightened up spending, got the country going again. Uh, to, but um, these things, we, we need to learn the lessons of history. So are you saying countries are in a lot of debt and it's becoming a big problem? Most Western countries are chronically in debt. I actually see it as a real fault line lining up in, our, in Western society now. People with assets, which is mostly older people, become wealthier and wealthier. People who are trying to get assets, whether it's their first home or some savings, young people find it harder and harder. It's a very nasty and unfortunate gap. And I actually do feel very sorry for young people. There's a bit of research around saying that they know it will be tougher for them and that they're prepared to take that on. Uh, but I have to say that I, I hear some of the policy promises being made, well, let's spell it out, by, by Mr Corbyn in Britain and Mr Sanders in America, uh, appealing to young people by saying, well, cancel all your college debts and so forth, without explaining what all that means is that when they do work, they'll have to pay back even more debt in their taxes. You know, there's no such thing. As a free lunch. No, there's not. So those what are, you know, they are socialist answers. Mm. Or if you'd been taught it properly at school, you'd recognise actually they're non-answers. They just land you in more trouble. So now with COVID-19 happening right before us, what do you think is going to happen with our country or with the world? I think it's incredibly hard to know because we don't know, as, I, as, as you and I speak now, how long it's going to go on for and how bad the uh, health crisis will be and how bad the economic mayhem that will result will be. But it's likely to be extremely serious and there will be uh, a dreadful hangover, particularly of debt and of very high levels of unemployment. So it'll be government sector debt, probably corporate debt, business debt and possibly personal debt, although a lot of people who are still able to draw an income won't be spending much because they're not travelling, they're not dining out. Um, and there will be a furious debate between those who say, right, let's keep big government interfering, free enterprises had its day. A lot of young people now have lost confidence in capitalism. The only thing I can say to them is you cannot name, I honestly cannot name another system that is really delivered for people, lifted people out of poverty and given them opportunities. Uh, people might say, well, what about the command economy out of Beijing? But in fact, Beijing, you know, China only started to move forward when they allowed a fair degree of capitalism. They opened their doors. That's right. Uh, they opened the doors to the rest of the world. Well, they allowed people to make a profit. Mm -hmm. People won't work harder, but I think it's going to be taken away from them. They won't do it. I said, what's the point? It'll all come unwound. The history teaches you that very clearly. Uh, the system's never been broken because human nature's never been changed. What do you think politicians are thinking right now at this moment regarding COVID-19? I think in some ways, in many countries, I think in my country, Australia, in some ways the politicians have behaved better than some of the people have. There's, there'll be those who say, how can you possibly say that, John? But we've seen people behaving, in some cases, very, very irresponsibly. When I think governments have been leading quite well in the face of a very, you know, it's like grappling with smoke and it gets worse every day. 
Now, I would imagine that they are extremely worried. They're very worried. No, no leader wants to be uh, in command when everything goes to custom and then one false move or even if it's just perceived to be the wrong move that sort of brings the economy down or costs a whole section of the economy their jobs. It's a dreadful prospect. And I think they really are worthy of our respect and our prayers whenever you can sense that they're earnestly trying to do the right thing at the moment. At the end of it, though, at the end of this, we are going to have the mother of all debates about how we move on, whether it's going to be some new monetary theory ideas, there's nothing new about them at all, they've all been tried, they've always failed, or whether we're going to go through the hard discipline that we refuse to go through after 07, 08. And so we've got to wind this public sector debt back. The only way we'll restore prosperity, it's the only way we'll be ready for the next shock because there'll be another one. There always is. We should have learned the lesson in 07, 08. We didn't. We'll have to learn it out of this. It's not going to be easy. And I suspect most of us are going to have to lower our sights a little in terms of living standards. Trump just wrote, or his administration just projected that this would create $2 trillion in debt for the nation. Given that we already have debt, that this will create that much more debt. Where do you think this would go? I don't know. It worries me a lot. It keeps me awake because I'm a father and a grandfather. I don't know how we're going to resolve it because we've never seen indebtedness of this sort, nor have we seen interest rates at such low levels for such a long time. These are uncharted waters, but in the end we have to remember debt is debt is debt. You know, you cannot, even if they're your fellow countrymen, you can't default on debt and hope to keep an economy working. It won't happen. So you've got to somehow manage those debts and start to wind them back. And it's a long grind, just as it is for a household that gets in too deep. Uh, you know, uh, a nation can hardly declare bankrupt. If it does, there's no one there to bail it out. And how do you feel like a leader with a Christian faith should be leading the country right now? Uh, prayerfully. I do think our pride has a lot to do with the problems that we face. So I think a leader ideally should project great humility. We have little to boast about. We actually have let ourselves and our children and grandchildren down in the West. I, I genuinely believe that. At some stage we decided pride was a greater virtue than humility and modesty and other person-centeredness. It's now all about me. Uh, the, the results, I think, are disastrous. And we are going to have to rethink very carefully. Now, we need leaders who will model that. And Australia is led by a man at the moment who I think essentially understands he must serve, he's not there to be served. Uh, in an age when, unfortunately, government has become, for too many people, a substitute for God. There's a terrible price to be paid if you don't get it right. Now, it's obviously very important to get it right, but it's also important for people in the community, for voters to realise that in a democracy particularly, it's vitally significant to never forget that politicians are humans too. They won't always get it right, even with the best will in the world. And if you just assume that they're always acting out of self-interest, they're always self-serving, they're always selfish, well, that'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy. We have to be prepared to reward and encourage men and women in public life who are earnest and sincere and well-motivated. If we're not going to recognise that, well, they won't come forward.
an up-and-coming young politician who I admire greatly in Australia say to me recently, it's just, I've watched how they've done the Prime Minister over during the summer because he had a very bad summer, the media were after him in this country. Um, it's so discouraged me, I'm not sure I want to continue in public office. And I said to him, I understand how you feel, but if people like you feel so discouraged, we really are in deep trouble, deep trouble. No one wants to be in that position because you'll be judged by everyone. And this is our problem. We become so judgmental. We so automatically assume we know best. And our concerns become self-fulfilling prophecies. So, John, I see your strong position in democracy. I mean, you were the leader of a democratic nation. What's interesting is you seem to understand both how painful it can be to lead a nation that can be quite opinionated and difficult, like you said now, turbocharged by social media. But at the same time, you do believe in the beauty of the system to advance society, to be for the people and by the people. But I think a lot of people struggle with where democracy is today because it seems to be what's dividing our country, at least in America in recent years. How do you think this issue can be addressed? The truth is that every Western society now has become incredibly tribalized. And this is now one of the greatest threats to, to our going forward. We are so focused on the things that divide us and so reluctant to identify with our fellow countrymen that it's very, very hard for us to agree on a way forward or for leaders to find us a way forward. I worked very hard at was this rural city divide in Australia. It's become a real problem. People who lived outside the big cities felt like second-class citizens. There's a parallel in the United States today, of course, a very close one. So I'm very hard to understand what were legitimate grievances as opposed to grievances that weren't the fault of government and to address them. But when there are inequalities, for example, in health delivery services or in mobile phone services or maths and science in schools, things like that work very, very hard to try and give country people the tools they needed to ensure that they didn't see themselves as neglected and second-class citizens who weren't respected or appreciated. So is it fair to say you represented a marginal group in Australia? So when you came in, you had to understand what everyone wanted. And so you created something that would work for everyone versus someone who would only understand the majority view and forget about everyone else. I do say to people, look, if you just want politicians to represent your particular interests, you may be asking them to do it at the expense of the population at large. That's not the right way to do it. A good government in the interests of all Americans or all Australians on the things that they have in common. You know, you want to be safe in your bed at night. You want to be strategically safe. You want a strong economy. You want job opportunities, reasonable um, incomes. Get those things right. And off the back of strong governance, you can then move particular needs of disadvantaged groups. Unfortunately, what happens to people in every tribalised group you can think of insists that their needs be met regardless of the implications for the interests of the whole, as though they are not part of the whole in the first place. That is the nature of what we now call identity politics. So if you go back to Martin Luther King, I have a dream that one day my children will be judged according to the content of their character, not the colour of their skin. And then you think of Kennedy saying, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Both of those are appeals for us to think 
of the common weal, if you like, the common good, and to think of yourselves as fully members of, in that case, the American family. Now what we do is we turn that on its head. We say, I have grievances. I and people like me have been unfairly treated. Therefore, I identify with a grievance group, with a victimhood group, and my country must. I demand that my country, which means my fellow countrymen, must meet my needs. Now, that is not to say people don't have legitimate needs. They do. But to the greatest degree possible, we should ask ourselves, how do we include everybody in the family rather than create, if you like, new, what one member of the left in Australia called recently, an aristocracy of victimhood. There are people with real needs. No one disputes that. But what we actually want everybody to do is to feel that they are part of the family. We don't want to create some sort of new uneven society. Martin Luther King would roll in his grave, I think, at the way in which now you have to elevate somebody's status on the basis of the colour of their skin rather than simply, as he pled, recognise them as fully part of the family. John presents quite an interesting view for those of us who may feel like we are part of a disadvantaged or marginalized group. But keep in mind that John's no stranger to this, as he represented the rural farming minority as a leader of the National Party in Australia. And he went beyond party lines to focus on the common good of the nation, which was to lower debt and boost the national economy as a whole, oftentimes getting misunderstood or underappreciated from his family and friends. And while we might never be in a position to have to think on behalf of an entire country, we might need to at our company or for an organization we care about. And during these times when there can be division or differences in opinion where you work, how might you consider leading in a way that can bring care to all concerned and get everyone rallied around common goals or objectives? We hope you took something away for how you can be a better leader at your workplace or community, especially at a time when our world faces an uncertain future and businesses need to get through complex challenges. If you'd like to hear more thought-provoking conversations on politics, values, and culture from John Anderson, you might want to check out his podcast and videos from his website, johnanderson.net.au. In a new series called John Anderson Direct, John stays safe and continues to talk to high-profile leaders on today's issues direct from home. This is Grace Huang, and thanks for listening. We will be taking a break before we launch our new season in the fall. We hope you and your family stay healthy in every way. Until then. And in case you missed the preview for the new season, It's going to get personal and possibly more raw and relevant to what you might be going through in your careers. The reality is the coronavirus crisis is going to hit millennials hard and it'll be our second economic crisis in about a decade. So we might need to brace ourselves for a lot more twists and turns at work than the previous generations. And with our faith, we might need to be ready to live it out in ways we never expected. So as we take a break from our monthly episode releases, be sure to look out for what's in store for our new season on the Millennial Career Path. And please get connected with us on social media if you haven't already.